The Bible reading this morning is from 1 John. It's on page 1230 of the Bibles that were on your seats, 1230. And it's 1 John chapter 3. And I'm going to start at verse 7. Page 1230, 1 John 3, starting at verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, and anyone who does not love their brother or sister. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love one another. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commands us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in us. This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Jill. Please would you keep that passage open. It's page 1230. It's 1 John chapter 3. Page 1230, 1 John chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, we've been reminded that you're present with us this morning by your spirit and 
Therefore, you are engaging with us. You are speaking to us. You are amongst us. You are working here. Father, please, will you work amongst us together as a church? Will you work in our hearts individually? And Father, please, would you bring about the change that you want us to make in our lives, the encouragement that we want to re- you want us to receive from you, the challenges, maybe even the rebukes that you want to bring to us. And may we receive all those things knowing that you love us. And where you want to bring change, you want to bring it for your glory and our good. And there's nothing better or greater than that. So, Father, please, would you now work by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk this morning about the shape of the church. Think about this building, the shape of the church. When Christians began to build buildings where they worshipped together, many of them were cross-shaped. So imagine that, you come to church, you come to worship You come to praise God, to adore Him, to hear His Word. You come to meet together, and you meet in a cross-shaped space. That's very significant. It's significant because it was a reminder that at the heart of the Christian message is the death of Jesus. Life comes through His death. Forgiveness comes through His death. His death, paradoxically, is the victory over sin, Satan, and death. It is in the cross of Jesus, in his death, that we find our hope for this life and for the future. It's in the cross of Jesus that we find hope for ourselves, where we find peace, renewal, and forgiveness, and discover the identity that God had in mind for us from the very beginning and is now brought into reality through the death of Jesus. So when people met together, and you can still find buildings that are like that, even in Australia, they are cross-shaped buildings. It was a reminder of the death of Jesus. But there's also something else going on. Space is really important. The space in which things happen shapes us, doesn't it? So if you go into an auditorium where the lights are all down and everything's dark except for the spotlights and the stage at the front, that creates a certain kind of emotional and aesthetic atmosphere. It shapes what happens when people gather. When the Christians met together in a cross-shaped building, then the shape of the building shaped their worship, their adoration, their praise, their prayer. They're meeting together, physically, emotionally, aesthetically. The shape of the building shaped their worship. And that's a profound illustration of something enormously important. 
In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I want you to notice that Paul there takes the language of the Old Testament of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, supremely worship happens in the temple. That's where it's demonstrated through the sacrificial system. Paul takes that language but removes it from the temple and uses it to apply to our bodies to offer sacrificial language your bodies as a living sacrifice just in case there are some pedants around who thought that they'd got to in some way slit their throat living sacrifices holy and pleasing to god this is your true worship What's Paul saying there? He is saying this, that when you go to work tomorrow, you, that is worship. When you go and pick up the children from school, that's part of your worship. When you empty the dishwasher, that is worship. When you work out your finances, when you listen to music, when you eat food, when you share food with one another, when you drink, when you shop, everything is worship. And so we meet together to worship. Some people find the language of worship when it's applied to people meeting together that are a bit suspicious. I, I, want to, I want to say this is worship. We adore and praise God together. We encourage one another. We hear God's word. We pray for one another. That is worship. But we go out into the rest of the week and the rest of our lives to worship. And here's the thing. The shape of our worship, the experience of being together in, imagine, a cross-shaped space. The shape of our worship as we adore God and we pray and we listen to his word is to shape our lives. The shape of the worship is the shape of our lives. Because the whole of life is worship. And therefore what happens here on Sundays as we gather together or in our small groups or whatever it is should shape the whole of our life. And that means this. Worship is to be cross-shaped. To put it another way, our lives are to be cross-shaped. And specifically, the shape of the church, what we are as the people of God, what we are together as the community of followers of Jesus Christ is to be cross-shaped. What is the shape of the church? It's cross-shaped. 
Do you notice there's an interaction of two things going on there? There's what we are together, what we are as we gather, what we are as the family, as the church, and what we are individually. Both are to be cross-shaped. And our meeting together, which is to be cross-shaped even if we are in a rectangular building, should shape the rest of our lives during the week. So what does it mean to be a cross-shaped church? I want to look at three things this morning. Three hallmarks of a cross-shaped church. Number one, first hallmark is love. The church is to be a community of love. Verse 11 of chapter 3, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We just had our um, eldest daughter over with her now fiancé. They flew back to London yesterday and as she was leaving, as they were leaving, we had a group hug. You know, she'd do so English. <laughs> and, um, and she said, uh, I love you. I love you. We are to love one another. The hallmark of the church is love. You know, when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, whether that was a, a moment's experience or whether you can never remember a time when you didn't know Jesus. But when you became part of God's people, you became part of a new family. And actually that new family is to use the language we've sometimes used here, is now your first family. That family that is the church of Jesus Christ comes before and defines every other relationship, even biological family. If you were around at the time of Jesus, the family was of number one importance. Although, by the way, when we talk about family in the first century, we are not talking about the nuclear family, that hallowed entity, the nuclear family. In the first century, it was much bigger than that. It was a much wider thing, the extended family, but, but family was central. And there were theological reasons why family was central, because hope lay in the future. You remember the promise to Abraham, through you and your descendants, The world will be blessed, and ultimately, that blessing comes through one person who will be the Messiah, the descendant of Jesus, who will be the king, who will be God's person, who will bring about God's victory for his people. So, family is really important. Having children is really, really important. You treasure the family. That's what it was like in the first century. We have taken that one step further. In fact, 
any number of steps further, we now worship, sometimes I think, the nuclear family. And so we go behind our picket fences and we close the door in our homes and so often isolate ourselves from everybody else. And we sacrifice for the nuclear family. Well, we're to love our families and we're to care for our families, but I want you to notice the words of Jesus. And if they were challenging in the first century, they're enormously challenging in the 21st century in the West. Mark 3:33. Jesus' brothers and mother and sisters come to him, to come to find him. He's clearly lost the plot. And they think he's probably gone a bit mad. And so they come to take control because they're family, you know. And they find him and he's teaching and he gets a message and they say, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus just turns around and says, who are my mother and brothers? That's not a very encouraging remark if you're a mother or brother, is it? And then Jesus looks around the room, which is filled with his disciples. And he says this. Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother. When you become a Christian, you become part of Jesus' family. And that's going to outlive every other relationship, including your, your nuclear family and mine, our biological family. And this is the family. And the hallmark of the family of Jesus is that we are called to love one another. A cross-shaped church is shown by its love, marked by love. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. Because you need to know I'm getting this from the text, don't you? It wasn't the extra coffee I had this morning. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. It's such a great verse, isn't it? Doesn't it make you feel warm? I mean, maybe as you go out afterwards and you have your coffee and you, you eat your chocolate cake. I don't know if it is chocolate cake this morning, I'm just guessing. Could be a prophetic word. Or it could be wrong. <laughs> and you look around and you feel such warmth. I love this community. I do love my brothers and sisters. Maybe as you were getting up this morning and you thought, oh, I just love to be with church. Maybe you didn't. My alarm went off this morning and I thought, bother. <laughs> Delete that. What does it mean when he says that we are to love one another? What is the hallmark of love? Two things. Number one, it is costly and personal. And number two, it's measurable. It's costly and personal. It involves us with our bodies and not just our minds. And the 
example of this, the model for this, is Jesus. Verse 16, have a look at it. This is how we know what love is. I look in and I feel the warmth. No. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. To put it more bluntly, Jesus was executed. Died in agony. That's how we know what love is. And he goes on, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Love is costly and personal. And it's measurable. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, then how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Some, some things are inspirational, aren't they? Using the example of Jesus can be so inspirational. We're to love like Jesus. But it's measurable. And John gives us an example. And this is an example that he gives us. It's very easy to understand. There's somebody in the church family and they're really struggling. And you go to them and you say, I so feel for you. I, I can see you're in such need. I'll pray for you. It's a good thing to do. But John is saying, if you're in a position to do something and you don't do anything, that's measurable to help them in their financial need. That's not love. It's not love. Dear children, let us not love in words or speech, but with actions and in truth. I want to ask you to think about some your own life and just to reflect on this question. How are you loving your family? Your first family. How are you loving the family? What are the ways you're doing that? How are you using the gifts God has given you? How are you using the circumstances that God has given you to love the family? How are you using your money to support the family? Neil will verify this. I do not know. I've said this before. I have no idea who gives what or who gives even for that matter. So, this isn't out of knowledge that I've gained because I've looked at the figures. But over the years, I've come across cases where people will give, and they'll give to almost anything, 
and everything and sometimes large amounts and they never give it to the family. Can I say that's wrong? Our first responsibility is to give to the family. First family. Of course we're to give to our biological families and care for them, of course. But when it comes to giving to the work of Jesus, then first family comes first. How are you loving the family? Is there somebody you need to take action over and show love to them? Some way of using your gifts, some way of serving. We're to be a community of love. Number two, a cross-shaped church is a community of resistance. A community of resistance. There's a phrase that's used, a biblical phrase, that goes something like this. Um, when, we're, when we're part of the family of Jesus, we're in the world, but we're not of it. That's Jesus' language. We're in the world, but not of it. And the word world there is being used the way John is using it here to mean a force, a way of living, a, 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 an approach to life, a, a set of powers that is implacably opposed to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what he means about the world. Notice the language that Jesus used, uh, John uses. He, he has these these very stark polarities. He talks about light and dark. Chapter 1 and verse 7. If we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness. The world is darkness. Jesus is light. To be a child of God is to be in the light. To be in the world is to be in the darkness. He's not talking about creation. This isn't about not hugging trees. He's using the world in this very specific sense of everything that is opposed to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Light and dark. Chapter 3 and verse 10. Children of God and children of the devil. That's pretty stark, isn't it? Chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5. From God or from the world. The world, in this sense, isn't a benign place. It's not redeemable. It is implacably opposed to Jesus Christ. And therefore, because we're in the world but not of the world, we will find ourselves against the world and the world against us. Chapter 3 and verse 13. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Cross-shaped church should be a community of resistance. The church should be a prophetic voice into the world speaking truth. In love, but speaking truth. What we say at times will so cut across the way the world thinks that they will hate us for it. But we are to be a prophetic voice in our world. And we are to live prophetic lives. Lives that witness to the reality of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and that we belong to a different era and a different realm. 
And in doing that, we condemn the world because we highlight the darkness with the light. We are to live lives of holiness, lives that are different. We are not to be, to use Paul's language, shaped by the world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to live lives that are different because we belong to Jesus that are being shaped by Him. What does that mean? Well, have a look at chapter 2 and verse 3. Whoever claims to live in Him that is in God must live as Jesus did. That's the model. And look at chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. As I said, that is not about... That's not about enjoying, I don't know, Wagner. <laughs> if you hug trees, that's okay. Weird, but okay. <laughs> it's not about hating nature. In fact, we are to have a concern for the natural creation. It's using world in this particular sense. Do not love the world or anything in the world. That means that there are things we need to say no to and other things that we need to say yes to. And we need to do that individually and corporately. And those two go together. Because what you and I are individually, personally, will affect what we are corporately. And what we are corporately will affect what we are individually. The two feed each other. Things that we need to say yes to and things that we need to say no to. That means we need to take action in our lives. And it's an ongoing action in our lives, and at times it will be costly because we'll have to do things we don't want to do. But we know that the right thing to do because that's what God says. And sometimes we'll need to start doing some things we're not doing that we don't want to do because we know that's the right thing to do. It will involve taking action, and at times that will be painful for us. But we need to do that if we're to live lives of resistance. I went to see some uh, people on um, Thursday. And they've spent about 20 years doing their garden. It's amazing. It's wonderful. I, I was awestruck. <laughs> and I kept saying that because I thought it was a good thing to say. Because after all, if you spend 20 years working on a garden, you, you need somebody to say, good job. <laughs> So, so we were shown around, and, and it, it, was, it was amazing. Just this amazing garden. Supposing you have a garden, and you say to yourself, I'm going to let it be itself. I'm, I'm just going to let it do what it feels. I'm, I'm going allow to allow it to express itself. The inner soul of the garden to manifest. If you do that, you won't have a garden. The only way you can have a garden and maintain a garden is by action. You need to take out the weeds. You need to prune. Sometimes you need to prune very severely because otherwise you will not have a garden. It is exactly, exactly, exactly the same when it comes to holiness. 
living like Jesus lived does not descend from the skies and suddenly come over us and change us. And we sit back and allow ourselves to be ourselves. If I allow myself to be myself, I will not be holy. Neither will you. A church that's cross-shaped will be a community of resistance. It will be where individually and corporately we're saying no to things in our life and yes to other things. And I can't emphasize strongly enough how important this is. But have a look at chapter 3 and verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. No one who is born of God sins, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot sin because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. That's how important it is. Without holiness, the writer of the Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We're to be a community of resistance. Our lives are to be characterized by holiness. So please reflect on your life. Are there some actions you need to take in your life where you need to say no? No. I will not do this any longer. I will, with the power of the Spirit, change. I will take steps. Are there things that you need to say yes to? And together as the family of Jesus, what are the things that we should be saying no to and what are the things that we should be saying yes to? Community of resistance, last one, community of hope. Um, the Bible uses world in a number of different ways. John is using it in particular to mean what's opposed to Jesus. So I'm, I'm going to kind of be paradoxical here and say we are to be a community of hope, which means that we need to be for the world. That is the world in the sense of the creation that God has made, in the sense of the people that God has made. We are for the world. But in order to be for the world and be the hope of the world, we need to be against the world. Do you see what I mean? We are to be against everything that is opposed to Jesus Christ. We're to be a community of resistance. But we can't be a community of hope for the people God has made and for this world without being against the world. And we are called to be the hope of the world. You know, the world doesn't need to hear an echo of its own voice played back to it. It just needs to turn on the TV or watch a movie or read a newspaper or have a conversation in a pub. 
we mustn't be an echo of the world. If we are to be the hope of the world, both in word and deed, we need to be a community of resistance. And we are called to be a community of hope. And that means we need to speak the message of hope. Contrast that with chapter 4, which talks about these false prophets who've gone out, these people who are from the world. And notice what he says in verse 5. He says, um, in verse 5, he says, They are from the world, and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. If we become an echo of what the world is saying, there are lots of people who will listen to us. We'll still be irrelevant because they don't need us. They think that anyway. We need to be a voice of hope in the world, and that means we need to speak about Jesus. We need to speak about the message of hope that's found in Him. So, God has placed people in your life and in mine some members of the family who don't know Jesus, people you work with, people you shop with, people you play sport with people you hang out with, people you come into contact with, how are they going to hear about the hope that is in Jesus? How? Think of it like this. God may have brought some of those people into your life because you're the one, the only one, who's going to bring the message of hope to them. And if you don't do it, it won't happen. We are to speak about Jesus, the hope that's found in him. Chapter 4 and verse 14, we testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. There is no other Savior. There is nobody else coming for us or for your neighbors or for your friends or for your family. We need to speak. And we also need to live it out. It's, it's, it's words and action, together, both. We bring hope in what we say, but it, we bring hope as we reach out in love to the world around us. And the model again is Jesus. So chapter 4 and verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loved us when we didn't love him, when we were his enemies to use Paul's language. We are to demonstrate love to the world, bring hope to the world by being those who love the world in action as well as in what we say, see. And that at times will be costly. It will be challenging. We won't always be popular, but that's what we're called to be. We are the hope of the world. So let me ask you again to reflect on your own life. Is there someone you need to speak to about Jesus because you haven't done it? You've talked about the coffee, the footy, the grandchildren, the children, the state of politics. But you've not spoken about Jesus. And what he's done for you. We're coming up to Christmas. Christmas is a really easy time to invite people to church. 
It does not get any easier than Christmas. So how about all of us invite people to church over Christmas? All of us. And after Christmas in the new year, we're going to be running an Alpha course. How about we invite someone to the Alpha course? Doesn't get an awful lot easier than that either. Actions to take in terms of speaking and actions to take in terms of living. Is there someone you need to bring God's love to this week? Today, demonstrate your love to them. Do an act of love or compassion for someone motivated, motivated by the love of Christ for you. Community of love, community of resistance, and a community of hope. What's the shape of the church? It's to be cross-shaped. What's the shape of the Christian life? It's to be cross-shaped. And our worship, as we gather together, should shape what we are for the rest of the week, which is our worship. And you know the paradox, don't you? Cross is about death. It's about failure. It's about suffering. But the paradox at the heart of the Christian gospel is that the cross brings life. And when a church is cross-shaped, then it is most alive, most effective, because it's through the cross and cross-shaped lives and cross-shaped churches that we can be a community of love, a community of resistance, and a community of hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. And Father, we pray by your spirit, you bring it home to us. What you're asking of us and what you're calling us and the greatness of what you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.